Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. In this episode, we're looking at Matthew 18.1 through 20.28, where we find a number of things, including what children teach us about the kingdom of heaven, sin and forgiveness, marriage and divorce, and the parables of the lost sheep and the laborers of the vineyard. There's a lot here. And so we're grateful to have Dr. Nathan Eubank with us to walk us through all of this in this passage. Uh, Dr. Nathan Eubank is uh, the Reverend John A. O'Brien, Associate Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, he has written interesting articles and an important book on economic language uh, in the Gospel of Matthew in particular, though his interests and writings uh, span the New Testament. Uh, one article, for instance, is Prison, Penance, or Purgatory, the Interpretation of Matthew 5, 25 to 26 in Parallels. Another one, Storing Up Treasure with God in the Heavens, Celestial Investments in Matthew. And this fascinating book, Wages of Cross-Bearing and Debt of Sin, The Economy of Heaven in Matthew's Gospel. And, you know, we, we brought him on because uh, Matthew has a lot of this economic language. And actually, as I was going through this section in particular, uh, Matthew 18 through 20, um, there's quite a bit of this economic language that we might often just gloss over and not think about the significance of it. And I think actually it has some interesting potentially theological uh, implications, yes. especially because, you know, certain Christian traditions, of course, uh, would be really reticent to the idea of wages, right, in terms of inheriting the kingdom of heaven. So I'm really glad to have uh, Nathan on here to help us think through uh, a lot of that. Yeah, so thanks for joining us, Nathan. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. I'm a, I'm a fan of the podcast. <laughs> Great. We love to hear that. Uh, well, let's start by hearing a little bit about what drew you to this theme of economics in the New Testament and then the Gospel of Matthew in particular. Yeah, so I think it was Matthew first. Um, my first year as a PhD student, I took a, a seminar with Richard Hayes on Matthew. That's when he was working on echoes of scripture and the gospels stuff. And uh, I just fell in love with it. I thought this is, this is a lot weirder and more exciting than, than I thought, you know, first book <laughs> of the new Testament, who would have guessed? Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm interested in everything. I tend to, to fall in love with whatever I'm reading at the time. Um, so as, as you mentioned, I, I don't just do, do Matthew, but yeah, I think it was that seminar with, with the, the economic stuff. Uh, I, it was just reading Matthew over and over. I started to, to notice that there was a lot there. Of course, there's a lot there in, in Christian and Jewish texts generally, but it seemed like there was, there's more in Matthew. And I just, I, I just realized I, my whole life, I'd, I'd never noticed it. Um, even in the, that seminar, actually, uh, with Richard Hayes, I, that, I went that whole semester and never noticed any of it. And I can read a whole commentary and no one, no one says any, anything about it. And I started digging into the the literature, um, you know, really trying to see what had been said. I noticed, um, especially if you go back a generation or two, uh, clear, concerted efforts to downplay it. 
um, usually in favor of a mm-hmm. Kantian, a supposed, I have um, Kantian expert friends who tell me this isn't correct. Um, but New Testament scholars of yesteryear thought that Kant taught that reward is its own virtue. And so if there's any kind of repayment for good deeds, it makes virtue impossible. And older commentators used to just right. sort of take that for granted. Like, oh, obviously that's correct. So how are we going to fix Matthew? Um, mm-hmm. And and so I thought, okay, well, there's. I just need to, to dig into this because it hasn't been given its... Right. Um, could you uh, briefly summarize what is going on here in Matthew 18, 1 through 20, verse 28? Sure. Um, so in chapter 18, uh, Jesus talks a lot. So if you have a red letter Bible, it's mostly red. Um, he's talking mostly about what we would call the church or, or the ecclesia. And then in 19 and 20, uh, the narrative continues to move forward toward Jerusalem. And Jesus talks about a number of things that maybe aren't related at first glance. So, you know, marriage, children, greatness, money. Uh, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Right. So um, how do you see this section here fitting into the Gospel of Matthew as a whole? So we have two ways of talking about this, depending on whether you're just like looking at Matthew by itself or if you're reading Matthew synoptically along with Mark, which I take to be one of Matthew's uh, sources. So um, if we, you know, reading it alongside with Mark, like Mark, for Matthew, this is part of an important section of the gospel after Jesus has started talking about his death and resurrection and the corresponding way of life set out for anyone who would follow him. Matthew, that's chapter 16. And before he's actually gone to Jerusalem uh, to die. And so in this material in between, there's a tendency to talk about the same kinds of issues over and over, which I think, which seems to me to be a way of reflecting on the meaning of the cross, of Jesus' cross and resurrection and what that means for the disciples. So in this section of Matthew and Mark, um, there are repeated passion and resurrection predictions, of course, lots of arguments about who's the greatest or what greatness means. Um, and you also get, you know, children, money, things like that. I think all of this, these are different ways of taking cross bearing. You know, so Jesus says not only that he is to die on a cross, but they are to bear their crosses. What does that mean? Does that literally mean that all of Jesus' followers get crucified? I think, um, it raises questions of sort of status, what counts, what, what makes someone a, a great disciple. And, and so that's why these, these same issues come up again and again, it seems to me. Issues like, you know, and we'll talk about children in a bit, but I think that's a great example of it. In if we're just looking at Matthew, if we if we didn't have the mark, um, what we would say is this is one of Matthew's huge blocks of teaching material. So it's worth mentioning that, too. Matthew loves to have Jesus just talk on and on and on and on. <laughs> and this is this is the fourth one of five. And it's often called. Um, well, the, in chapter 18, it's often called the discourse on the on the church. That's worth mentioning, too. Great. Now, in this stretch of text, what do you find most challenging for yourself to kind of grasp and understand? I think, I mean, there's always, when you know, whenever you dig into anything, I mean, this is why I like uh, the Bible. Whenever you dig into anything, it's it's all, everything's confusing, actually, <laughs> you know? Um, it, 
it's almost the opposite of, of what I thought before I started doing this for a living. I thought, oh, that must be really boring because probably everyone knows what, what everything says already. <laughs> uh, if I had to pick one in this section, I would say the pornea or fornication, however you translate it, exception clause in the teaching on marriage and divorce in chapter 18. Uh, there's a parallel to that also in Matthew 5. Um Jesus seems to have prohibited divorce. We see it in Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians. And then Matthew throws in this clause, which is confusing in every way. Um, it doesn't fit my idea of Matthew. Matthew seems to be quite conservative with his sources. And he's adding this thing that seems to make a big difference. Does it mean that divorce is, divorce and remarriage are prohibited um, in cases of adultery or something like that? Does it mean that separation or divorce is required? That's another possibility. Um, does it mean that div separation or divorce is prohibited but not remarriage? Or, I mean, if you look at the, the secondary literature on this, it's all over the place. The syntax is difficult, and I just, I've just i spent some time with it, and I don't think I'm ever going to know what, what I think. So, <laughs> Okay. Great. So um, don't ask so me about it anymore. No, just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we might poke at it a little bit. Okay. Um, <laughs> in chapter 18, the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds with an object lesson, right? He calls for a child and tells the, the disciples, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, how do you think, how do children here inform Jesus's instruction of what uh, the disciples must do to enter the kingdom of heaven? So I, I think the question here is one of status. I mean, it, it begins at the beginning of, of 18. The disciples ask, uh, who is the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven? And that's why Jesus grabs a child. And I, as I suggested earlier, I think the question of status comes up naturally when the person they take to be, you know, the Lord or the Christ has announced to him that he is to be crucified, which is a way, it's a public way in Roman punishment that you could illustrate um, someone's complete lack of status, maybe along with um, mocking their attempts at, at attaining a kind of status. Mm -hmm. So, so, so I think that's the kind of macro structure. That's, that's what's in the background. And the disciples come and say, who is, who is the greatest? And so then Jesus grabs a child and doesn't just say, and he ups the ante. Um, it's not just that you need to become like a child to be great. It's you need to become like a child to enter the kingdom at all. You know, you know you'll never enter the kingdom unless you become like a child. So the question then, you know, your, your good question is, um, what, what do children signify here? Mm -hmm. um, in religious art, I think sometimes may, maybe this is a little bit distracting for people who've, who've grown up around Christian-y stuff. Um, children can represent all kinds of different things, sort of ro romantic, maybe you know, someone who's f free of culture, someone who's you know, innocent, uh, cherubic. I don't think any of that is in play here. I think it's pretty clear that we're dealing with children as low status, hmm. humble, but lowly, because that that's what the passage is about. Um, it's hmm. not, it's not say, you know, lack of experience or something like that. I, th I think it's about lowliness. So ch children are um, in the synoptic tradition, especially in Matthew, 
uh, you might say like an icon or an image of, of the cross or cruciformity. And they come up again and again, surprisingly, especially in Matthew. So when Jesus enters the temple in chapter 21, um, he's praised by children who cry out. People who witness this grow angry, but Jesus quotes a psalm to, to explain why this should be. Um, or in chapter 19, in, in a bit, um, Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to children. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus says that um, he praises his, his father for revealing these things to children and not to the wise. In that case, probably referring to like, um, figurative you know, children, not, not literal children. So I think, I think that's why, why they appear here. It's a, the child is, a, is a, like an image of what every disciple must become to enter the kingdom. But I think for Matthew, that's also an image of Jesus himself. Hmm. That is striking because I think in our culture, children are given a very high status. Uh, <laughs> and so it's hard for us to connect to this message that children are being used to communicate. Uh, so, you know, we hold children up on this kind of pedestal in some ways. And maybe that's where these ideas of innocence and so forth get connected with children. Uh, but what Jesus is actually saying is a, it's a humiliating image, mm. potentially. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think the way that what a, ch a child signifies is so different for us. Um, it, it becomes it becomes. I mean, you, even I think even in contemporary culture, sometimes you will hear the kind of sentiments expressed that, oh, children are dumb, right? Or they're they're not they're not they're not they're not intellectually formed, right? They're kind of uh, they're immature, right? right? The immaturity of a child, which right. I mean, kind and of someone says, don't be a child, yeah, right? That's yeah, what they're getting. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, we we have I think we have some of that as well, but I think your your point is more more of the social status. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That they're lowly. They're not great. Um, there's, yeah. there's nothing impressive about them. So, so maybe for us, the closest analogy would be, uh, how we feel about children on airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now Jesus does something interesting because he not only says in verse four, whoever becomes humble, like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He then in verse five says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on, there seems to be a bit of a pivot there, is there, between being like a child and then welcoming uh, one who's of low status? Yeah, I, I think there is a bit of a, a pivot there. So this picks up on another motif in Matthew's gospel, which is you know, sometimes called the Emmanuel motif, that um, Jesus is God with us. So Matthew you know, begins with that, he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. It, it ends with Jesus promising to be with his disciples until the end of the age. Um, he says a little bit later that when two or three are gathered in his name, he, he is there with them. And so there's this idea that Jesus is present with, with the disciples always. And one way where that happens specifically that comes up again and again is he's present in certain people. Um, especially the lowly. So the most famous example of this by far, I think, is in chapter 25 with the sheep and the goats, where, mm -hmm. you know, the nations are told whenever they helped the prisoners and the naked and the hungry and so on, they were actually right. serving Jesus the, or the, the son of man. Um, but in chapter 10, the missionary discourse, um, he says that anyone who helps the, you know, the people he sends out to preach, um, that they're really receiving him. And they're called little ones there also. They're, they're described mm -hmm. in, in childlike terms. Um, so I think I think here it, 
welcoming a child is closely analogous to say welcoming a humble disciple or welcoming beggar, you know, someone in, in need mm-hmm. children, those lowly people are, um, quite, as I said earlier, they are sort of images of, of Christ I think, in Matthew. So after speaking to the importance of welcoming children in Jesus's name, Jesus then discusses the consequences that fall on those who cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. That's verse six. He says in verse seven, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. So what does Jesus mean here when he warns us against causing one of the little ones to sin? Hey, uh, great question. So probably we've switched here from literal children to humble disciples, though for Matthew, it would include actual children. I mean, Matthew thinks that the children believe in, in Jesus, as you see in, in chapter 21, this is in the temple. Um, so whether it's children or, or humble disciples, causing them to sin would be uh, a, a persistent concern of Matthew is the fallibility, defectibility of disciples. And that in the ecclesia or in, in the church, in the, the group of people who appear to be followers of Jesus, some might not make it. Some might might not in, endure to the end. Um, you see this, for example, in Matthew's explanation of the parable of the sower in chapter 13, or later in this chapter, he talks a lot about disciples who sin. Um, Matthew 24 and 25 talks about different kinds of servants, you know, some who are faithful, others who are not faithful. So so here we're dealing with the problem of one disciple maybe causing another to to fall away in this in this way that Matthew's worried about. Um, This could happen. And so if we're to skip, like, what would this actually mean in practice? If if all if all we have to go on is is Matthew, Um, you see, chapter 23, uh, when he's talking about scribes and Pharisees. There could just be a bad example. So you could have a teacher or someone in authority who just isn't, you know, doesn't behave well. And so that would be an example. Um, Matthew's worried about people who confess outwardly but lack obedience. You see that in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, for example. Um, So that, that would be another one. Another would be, say, Peter. You know, Peter attempts to cause Jesus to sin, to, to draw mm. him away in chapter 16, when he tries him not to go the way of the cross. So I think all of those, so, you know, saying bad things, teaching bad things, act, acting in, in a bad way is probably what Matthew has in mind. Now, after Jesus, uh, you know, cautions against causing one of these little ones to sin, he then continues and says, it would be better to cut off a hand or a foot or tear out an eye uh, which might cause you to sin. So now it seems like he's almost, I don't know if he switched from causing someone else to sin to uh, preventing some body part in yourself from causing you to sin. Um, it would be better to remove that body part or tear it out uh, because it's better to enter uh, life missing body parts instead of entering eternal fire with the whole body intact. What is Jesus communicating here with this kind of grisly and gory um, <laughs> exhortation? Well, uh, Matthew and the synoptic tradition in general, but I think especially Matthew loves the grisly, the gory, the fantastic, over the top, the grotesque, um, you know, camels through eyes of needle, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Um, so just, you know, beams and eyes, you know, whole, whole 
you know, it's stuck in your in your eye. This, this is typical of of uh, of Matthew, and I think it comes up here probably with a kind of catchword association with the word that we're use, we're translating as cause to sin. Um, so he just talked about you know don't be a cause to sin to someone else. Now, as, as you said, um, he he switches to talking about your own body causing you to sin. So I think what we have here is a sort of a fantastic or over the top and exaggerated way of saying, stop at nothing to eliminate causes of sin in yourself. He says something similar in the context of uh, adultery in chapter five. So just don't let, don't, don't let anything get in the way, you know, do it, do what you have to do. Right, cut off your, was it, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off there. Yeah, that's right. So this is not intended to be in any way a literal command from Jesus. I, you know, I don't think he probably is advocating mutilation here. You know, the, the Bible, the biblical tradition is so weird. It's worth, it's worth seriously entertaining. Um, but no, I think that... Have people in the history of the church tried to apply this? I mean, I think I remember a story about Origen. There's some debate about whether he actually tries to apply this literally. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he actually did. Is it Eusebius who says that? I, I don't know offhand. I think Eusebius maybe suggests this, and then most Origen scholars. I know I've I've heard smart Origen scholars assure me that that he didn't actually <laughs> capture it. Okay. All right, so we don't need to worry about that. Good. I'm glad we've cleared that up. Uh, let's move on then. Uh, so Jesus then tells this parable about the lost sheep and how God is a shepherd who leaves the 99 to rescue the one sheep that went astray. And it's striking the way that he puts it because he says, what do you think in verse 12? If a shepherd has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? It's a kind of rhetorical question. Which I want to, I want to say, no, he doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that. <laughs> I would expect the people to say, oh, yes, obviously. <laughs> That's what he does. So explain to us the logic of the parable here and how it communicates its message. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So if a shepherd was a hired hand, which they often were, um, it is, it's possible, you know, it, I don't think we have um, unequivocal evidence um, from like documentary papyri or, you know, ancient contracts and receipts and stuff um, on this. But I think it's possible that if a certain number of sheep were entrusted, like if I own the sheep and I entrusted them to you, that I would expect after the end of a you know, certain amount of time to get them all back. And maybe you'd be on the hook financially for any that were damaged or, or lost. I think you know, to summarize a, a lot of stuff, I think that's not crazy. I think that, that, okay. that's, that's possible. Similarly, if, if you were the owner, John's gospel makes this point ex explicitly. You might be even more concerned if they were your sheep. Um, that's valuable property. You wouldn't, you wouldn't lost. So if going after the one means leaving the other 99 to get lost, that, that doesn't seem right. But I do, think, I do think it's plausible that if you could leave them in the care of someone else, um, isn't the old story, and I never know what to believe about these stories, about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I, I think was, was a, a, allegedly a situation yeah, like this, yeah. um, where yeah. somebody was going after one sheep. Um, so, I mean, so that's what I would do. Like if one of my children, 
uh, were to were to go missing, I would, you know, I'd say forget about the other ones. They they're they're fine, or you know leave leave them with with somebody else, and then sure. I'm going to go all over the place look, looking for the one. So actually, right. I don't think I, I think okay. maybe this is a plausible scenario. Yeah, it depends. So it depends on how you reconstruct the scenario. If the scenario is one where you leave the ninety nine unattended, yeah. Then Though, but then that's striking because I think the way this parable is often interpreted is to demonstrate the gratuitous nature of God's love that He goes after the one, but it's actually it's just the way that a shepherd would act. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and of course, the the Luke in parallel is lodged with a bunch of other. Um, passages that that might push it more in the, the in the direction of gratuity. Um, here, I think I, I think probably the point would be less that oh, isn't it amazing that God would do this extraordinary thing? But more that these people who have fallen away are not just lost, mm-hmm. um, but there's actually in a sense a greater priority on them. Yeah. So you could take even the same parable and understand it in different ways based on the context that it comes in in the gospel and, and so different aspects could be emphasized yeah and it, it seems it seems like the, i mean the point in the here for matthew is that when the and if he finds it truly it's like he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray it's kind of demonstrating so how, you get some of the gratuity there yeah, yeah how 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 excited you know god yeah. is to rescue one you know it brings him a lot of joy and uh, that, you know, then verse 14, so it is not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. So he's really concerned even about the single lost one. Yeah. Which is, yeah. It seems when Jesus tells this parable in verses 12 to 13, he still has in mind the little ones, right, that he discussed earlier in verse 6. Uh, here he says in verse 10, to take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. Since in heaven, their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. Uh, Who are these angels? And does this mean that children, or those who have become children, have guardian angels? And what is the function of these angels? It's a a great question. This is a a really interesting passage. And I, I suspect this is the main biblical source of the idea of guardian angels, just because Matthew's been so popular in the, in the church. I mean, I doubt that it's Tobit that primarily uh, <laughs> in, in inspired it. Um, so we have a shift here from warning against um, causing little ones to sin to here to despising them. Um, so thinking, thinking of them as perhaps as low status as, as in fact mm-hmm. that they are. So there's a kind of reevaluation of worth that's been, that stretches back to verse one of, of chapter 18. Um, and the way that Matthew does this is by, as, as Matthew often does, is by contrasting kind of heavenly and earthly reality. I, I know you had Jonathan Pennington as a guest. I don't know if you got into this with him. He has a great book on heaven and earth in, Ma- in Matthew's gospel. And the, the way this motif functions, he argues, and I think he's exactly right, um, is Matthew likes to draw attention to the differences between the way things are and our normal reality and the heavenly reality or the reality in the heavens. It's usually plural. And, and, um, and so, like, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, disciples are taught to pray that the heavenly reality would be executed or done here on earth. And in this example, that means, whereas on earth, uh, children are of low status and they're annoying, um, 
too loud. <laughs> they don't let me read. Uh, in in heaven, they have uh, an angelic representative continually beholding, you know, the unseeable God, um, and so that kind of that that flips things around. So actually, the heavenly reality is they have this. You know, th- there's a kind of greatness. Of course, again, I'm not losing sight of the fact that here we're dealing not just maybe with literal children, but with humble disciples, um, that with with little ones. Now the so I, that much to me is clear. Here's the here's the weird part, in, in my opinion, um, or maybe the surprising part. We are these guardian angels here. It doesn't it doesn't sound like it to me. It doesn't sound like an angel say sent to help. Um, like in Tobit, or to send a message, like in Luke one, um, or Daniel. Here we have an angel. If anything, it almost looks like it's the other way. It's like from the child to God, uh, like a perhaps an, an intercessor on the on the. I keep saying child on the little ones one's behalf, something like that. So I don't think it quite fits our image of a guardian angel. Does that? Yeah, I don't know. What do you? It's not guarding them. It's not like right. the angel that's a wonderful life that comes down yeah. and you know, <laughs> fixes George Bailey's life. Uh, it, the angel's focus is on God, not on the child on earth. Yeah, that's what you're pointing out. So it's continually I mean, holding the face of the father. Sorry. Yeah, it's, I mean, it describes them as their angels. So in some sense, they belong to the little ones. Um, and the, the connection between them is close enough that Jesus uses it as a rationale for not thinking lightly of the little Yeah. So let me, let me press a little bit here because right after he talks about the uh, angels continually see the face of my father in heaven, he then asks, what do you think if a shepherd has a hundred, right? A hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray. He tells this parable of the lost sheep. So what's, what's the connection here? I mean, I'm trying to find a connection between these angels who are, maybe you know, you don't like the language of guardian, but there's they have some connection to, to the little ones. Um, and if the little ones are despised, yeah, it seems like that's going to cause them to maybe be like the one sheep that goes astray. And does the, is this where the angel kind of it functions as an intercessor who says, hey, God, God, the father, you need to go get that angel that's gone astray and go go rescue it. Is that kind of what's going on? The other thing I was wondering is, uh, it, and I don't think it comes out this way, but uh, angels as executioners. So it's kind of like, don't despise one of these little ones or else, uh, you know, these angels are going to basically summon God, the father, to act as kind of, uh, to, to, judge. To, to judge you and, and bring vindication. But here it seems like the, at least the way it shifts to the pair of the lost sheep, it's like the angels is, are almost summoning the father to act, go sh- rescue the sh- I mean, what do you, what yeah, do you I really like, I really like that suggestion as is so often the case in the synoptics in the synoptic gospels, a lot hinges on the extent to which we read a section as tightly woven together and mutually um, illuminating as opposed to a kind of a grab bag of Jesus sayings that Matthew wanted to get. Um, In contrast, say to John, if you ever read John, there's no question that it's all kind of together. It it represents a unified vision of what Jesus wants to say. Whereas at times in the synoptic gospels and all, in all three of them, um, especially in teaching material, you think, okay, are these, do these sayings go together 
or are they sort of loosely associated by um, cognate ideas or 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 key words? Yeah, I think so. I in general, I tend to think the the synoptics are more coherent than scholars often give them credit for. Coherent in the sense that like you're really meant to read them from beginning to end, and everything's mutually interpreting. And I quite like that suggestion. Like, don't despise them. I mean, maybe you know we could even add. Don't don't despise one of one of them, you know, when they've they've gone astray, uh, because they have. You remember this this angel they have before the face of the father, and then you know, we get this example of God's concern for going after them. So I quite like I quite like that. Your other suggestion doesn't really go along with this one very well, but it's I like that too. I mean, it, I could see. <laughs> I could see an ancient interpreter looking at it that way that like sure, don't, sure. don't you mess with these little ones because these, <laughs> yeah, yeah, these angels yeah. of vengeance are going to get you. I mean, I guess one way to go that way is to, to go in the, the vindictive angel way is to tie it to what came before with, you know, you don't no stone and everything. You, yeah. You don't cause one of the little ones to stumble and then you don't yourself sin. So maybe the sinning is you is sinning in a way that causes one of the little ones to stumble. I mean, you know, I'm being a little bit <laughs> ornate probably in my reading, but if you tie it with what comes before, mm-hmm. then it's like, yeah, don't despise one of these little ones or else you have these enforcer angels. Yeah. Cause these paragraph divisions aren't in the original text. Right. And if you read that with the paragraph before, instead of the paragraph that's currently in, right. it does, maybe push you in that direction in terms of reading it in that way. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, let's move further into chapter 18. So Jesus gives instructions for how to handle when someone sins against you. So first you're supposed to deal with it between you and the offending party alone. And if they listen, great. And it says you have regained that one. But if not, then you have to take it to one or two other people. If the person still doesn't listen, then the matter goes to the church. And then it says if it still is not dealt with, the person doesn't repent, then they are treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what does it mean to treat someone, for Matthew, like a Gentile and a tax collector? And then what does it mean when it says in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven? Uh, Great great questions. Uh, So first I want to mention that there's a really important textual variant that changes a lot here in verse 15. So some manuscripts uh, we would translate, if if your brother sins, go and do all this stuff. And, and others add two words in Greek, which would make it, if your brother sins against you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's hard to decide which one Matthew is more likely to have said. And I just I mention it because um, there actually aren't that many really interesting textual variants in Matthew, and this is one of them. Is it? Are we dealing with a case where somebody just sinned? Like you, you, I see that guy sinning. I'm going to go get him. Or is it you know something against against you? It, it's you know like it. Yeah. Pretty pretty different scenarios. Mm-hmm. So to be to become as a, a Gentile or a tax collector. Gentiles or the nations, you know, non-Israelites are consistently the other, the outsider in Matthew's gospel. They're used as an example, Sermon on the Mount, of how not to act or just sort of or, an ordinary way of acting that's not particularly Im- impressive. Um, and tax collectors are like your, you know, your chief kind of sinner. I mean, I don't know, for us, it'd be like your what, what would it be? corrupt Wall Street bro. Um, <laughs> 
you know, so your, your signal kind of center. So to treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors, that would mean that they are, that they're outsiders. Um, pr probably not irrevocably lost though, because Matthew also has a big emphasis on the gospel going out to the nations and, and also going to sinners like, like tax collectors, but they would be in that category. They would be in the category of people needed to be rescued. And well, and it's striking to read this in the context of the parable of the lost sheep right before it, right? And so then we can read this and see this maybe as a means through which those lost sheep are brought back into the fold. You go through this process to try and do that. That's exactly right. What about the binding and the loosing part? What does that mean? Yeah, that's tricky. So in context, it seems to be, um, you know, refer most immediately to the decision to eventually treat them as Gentiles and tax collectors. So there's a, there's an authority that's, that's um, exercised by the community two, two or three gathered in Jesus's name. That means Jesus is actually among them and sort of with the authority of Jesus or, or presence of Jesus, um, they are able to decide that this person is unrepentant in their, in their sinning. And, um, and, and they, they are going to be treated as a, as a Gentile or a tax collector so in that sense, it would it looks to me to be pretty similar to a saying in John 20, when the risen Jesus confers on the disciples the authority to uh, forgive or retain sins. So it looks, looks like something like that. So acting in Jesus's name, they're able to decide um, you know, what to do with sinner, or perhaps also how to try to you know, work together to try to rescue that person. Um, we should probably mention that there's a there's a parallel in Matthew 16, um, where Jesus is only talking to Peter, mm -hmm. and that's that's the famous you know, on this rock I will build my church. Uh, he's given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which you bind, um, bound in heaven, and seen. Uh, maybe that means something similar that can refer to forgiveness. A lot of scholars think that that also has teaching in view. So sort of deciding what counts as sinning, what counts as a necessary obedience. So the two are closely related, authoritative teaching and kind of uh, forgiveness and discipline. Another passage, if you're interested in this, to get to the bottom of it that I would suggest looking at would be Matthew 23, where Jesus is talking to this uh, or excoriating scribes and Pharisees and describe, and he thinks, you know, that they have real authority sitting on the seat of Moses and talks about how they bind heavy burdens on people and basically mm. prevent their salvation. Um, so probably what we have here is a kind of shift in Matthew's mind and Matthew's circles of the kind of the authority that they believe that the scribes and Pharisees exercise to the ecclesia uh, or the you know, church gathered around Jesus to sort of teach and, and discipline authoritatively. Interesting. In response to this, Peter then asked Jesus how many times then he is supposed to forgive his brother, to which Jesus responds, not seven, but 77 times. And then Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, can you wa walk us through this parable? And uh, I mean, we have economic language here, right? Um, yep. And what's the significance of this parable in the economic language that we find here? Okay. Uh 
Well, the the gist of, of the parable in a nutshell is, I, w- I would suggest, a kind of narrative expansion or explanation of the famous line in the Lord's Prayer, um, forgive us our debts, or, you know, a lot of people say trespasses with terrible translation. Um, <laughs> forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then there's a nice little explanation at the bottom of it in Matthew 6, um, using language more like more like trespasses so just that you understand that we're not just talking about literal debts mm-hmm. um so it's a way of tying uh god's forgiveness of you to your forgiveness of others and before we even talk about the parable you could just jump to punchline in verse 35 where jesus says thus also so whatever i just said this is this is the point um, your heavenly father will do to you if you, each of you do not forgive his brother, um, from your, from your heart. So this is what, what's at stake is, um, the obligation that is imposed on you if you receive divine mercy, um, to go show a similar mercy. So in the, in the parable, uh, begins with a king settling accounts with his servants. Settling accounts is a recurring image of the kind of the last judgment in Matthew, not contemporary Christians' favorite image, but it's a, it's a <laughs> one that shows up repeated, repeatedly in Matthew. Um, he's settling accounts. He finds a servant that owes him. My preferred translation of the amount that he owes him is a bazillion dollars or like a, a, a gazillion dollars. Um, sometimes scholars will try to specify exactly how much this was. And it's totally pointless because the unit that used talent varied in time and place. And the amount is just, it's just incalculable. So like more than you could possibly ever imagine. That's, that's the point. He owes that much. And so the king is going to sell him and his, his wife and children um, in order to make payment, which is interesting. Uh, he begs for mercy and the king says, fine, I forgive you everything. No, no big deal. Then the guy goes and finds a fellow servant who owes him just a tiny amount and um, refuses to show mercy to him when he asks for it and has him thrown into prison until he should repay all that he owes. The king finds out about it and says, I think an important verse is uh, verse 33. Was it not necessary for you to show mercy to your fellow servant as, as I showed mercy to you? That's, that's, that's kind of the, the point, Matthew. And so then um, the Lord, he's called there, he's enraged, and he hands him over to the torturers, um, and he's thrown into prison until he should repay all that he owes. Uh, so again, I think the, the point is receiving, receiving mercy obliges one to show a similar mercy, mercy to others. That's, that's an important idea for, um, uh, now the, one of the things that really interests me about this is all these references. So this is just kind of a, like a, a social historical question. I think so exegetically, I think for Matthew, that's what it is. Some, some people try to get around it because they don't like it theologically, but sorry, I don't know. Um, <laughs> a, an interesting question here that, that fascinates me is all these references to loss of freedom in order to repay a debt. We have the, the sale of a family to repay a debt, thrown into prison to repay a debt, or thrown to the, the, the torturers until a debt can be paid. There's a similar um, reference to something like this in Matthew 5. Verses 25 and 26, um, where you can be thrown into prison until you repay the last penny that you somebody else. Um, I, I 
worked, I did my very best um, a few years ago to try to figure out how this actually worked in, in antiquity. As, as far as I can tell, I mean, there were lots of attempts to make um, imprisonment or debt slavery uh, illegal, but people kept doing it. And the, the reason was it's a great way to just coerce people to pay. So I don't think okay. you, you don't pay by suffering itself, but um, if you're thrown into prison, you would be quickly motivated, say, to liquidate any remaining assets that you had or to get um, a friend to, to bail you out, that sort of thing. So I think that's that's what's um, envisioned here. In ancient Christian commentary, people go crazy with these references to repaying all that you owe in prison, and they take it in a kind of um, – you might call it like a purgatorial direction where postmortem punishment uh, could eventually, you know, like maybe you'd get out of prison. But I don't, I don't think that's what Matthew actually has in, has in mind. I'd mention okay. it anyway. So Nathan, we told you at the top. Well, you asked for mercy at the top on this marriage <laughs> question in um, chapter nineteen. But let's just talk briefly about it. What what's the basic conflict here as the Pharisees bring this question to Jesus and Jesus responds to it. So the, the question they ask him, whether it's lawful to divorce uh, for any reason and scholars usually interpret this with reference to um, a debate that we find in later rabbinic literature um, between two different schools of interpretation. One of which said you can divorce a woman really basically, you know, cause she cooked badly or anything. And the other that's that, interpreted a line from Deuteronomy to mean um, it had to be something like some kind of like serious, like sexual fraction. And so it's, it's plausible that something like that is, is in the background here. And what Jesus goes on to say then uh, following the, the, the parallel in Mark is that God has joined the two together. They are one flesh. Humans can't separate that. So he seems to just deny both. And that's what we see across the New Testament from Jesus. No divorce, marriage is indissoluble. But then, as I mentioned earlier, and this is why I, I begged for mercy, um, he, he goes on to, to add this exception clause uh, in verse 9. And that can mean a, a number of di a different things that maybe we don't. Uh, but it, in general, anyway, for Matthew, as, as the rest of the New Testament, marriage is, is God has joined it together. It's, it's permanent. Then the disciples object. I mean, this sounds terrible. <laughs> if there's no, if there's no out, maybe we should get married. And we get this, um, this eunuch saying, which is only found in Matthew. Um, that word could describe somebody who is, you know, a castrated, say, court official, um, or somebody who's just incapable of, of conceiving children. Here, it seems to be applied in a number of different ways, including those who decide to become eunuchs for the for the kingdom seemingly like embrace uh, a life of, of celibacy. Mm -hmm. um, and so traditionally this is read along with a passage in first Corinthians um, to, and this is where you get the ancient Christian um, fascination with, with celibacy. Note, however, I'll just say one, one last thing. It's often people take this to mean there's another way, like, Oh, if you don't like marriage, try, try being a eunuch, like as a, as a, as a separate path. And, and maybe something like that is in view, but I think also if Jesus's teaching on marriage is followed, inevitably you're going to have a lot of people living as celibates who started out married. Because if, say, if the marriage goes sour and there's no out, so it's the, the logic of these, these two parts, I, I think, is, is a little closer. 
there's that would be another kind of eunuch for the they become so they become eunuchs because they are they can't marry anyone else they can't marry anyone else so they get divorced but they're they just can't get divorced or they can't get divorced they just live as though they were um so as though they were unmarried so so i in in practice you know obviously many marriages ancient and modern end up for a million different reasons going down the tubes sure and if if we're not in a situation where there's the possibility of remarriage, okay, and uh, all that's left is 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 living celibately, that's right? I guess what I'm I'm asking is that, um, but it, has he foreclosed the divorce altogether? Well, the, you that, well that's that's the question. There, as I. You know, I haven't worked on this recently, but I think there's three main options for that in, in verse nine and, and the parallel in five is it three, two. Um, so it's either. So the, the exception clause in case of, you know, fornication or however you translate mm -hmm. it, um, some would take it to mean, yeah, if there's if there's pornea, all bets are off. You can start over okay. control, all delete. That's one. That's one that obviously a lot of people favor, a lot of Christians favor, because otherwise this, you know, you have the same um reaction of the disciples like man if this yeah. is true let's don't get married yeah um, another option is that it refers to the sort of the separation in other words if, there, if you have pornea yes like divorce but you still can't get remarried you live another way yes and okay. then a, an, another interesting proposal that's on the table um from a lot of uh, a number of Jew jewish parallels is that in case of pornea you're actually required to divorce or separate and that it's no longer lawful for you to to stay together. I really i i've I still can't make up my mind. Sure. The the problem I have with the idea, and we're talking about this longer than we said we were going to. The problem I have with the idea <laughs> that much beloved by many interpreters that this just means all bets are off is I don't I don't see how what Jesus that would be a basically a, a reversal of the earlier teaching. And Jesus would be squarely in these uh, established line of interpretation. Um, it would be a reversal of what Jesus says in Mark. And then why Why then the reaction from the disciples? Right, right, sure. Great. Okay, well, in verses 13 through 15, we get what appears to be a digression about children. Um, and so we read that then little, little children were being brought to him in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And he laid his hands on them and went on his way. Um, I mean, it seems to come out of nowhere, right? It's right in between the teaching on marriage and divorce, and then right after this we get the rich young uh, man. Um, is this like just kind of why is this here? <laughs> is it is there some rationale or no? What do you think? Um, yes. So the Matthew is like a film editor where on set you you shoot a bunch of different scenes and you're not maybe even sure where they're all going to go. And then the way you finally tell the story is in the order of the scenes. Um, with students, my favorite example of this is the baptism sequence in the first Godfather movie, if you've seen that, which is spliced together with a bunch of murders. Baptism, mm -hmm. murder, baptism, murder. So here we have another saying, another tradition of, of Jesus and the children, but it's put here along with, alongside of other traditions about children, greatness disputes, passion predictions, and as I suggested earlier, I think the, the point is 
um, to draw the mind of the reader back again to children to remember that, you know, such as, as these, the kingdom belongs. This is, mm. it's, a, it's an image of, of the kingdom or of, of Jesus. Himself. So verses 16 to 30, then we have this rich young man who comes to Jesus. And as an expert on economic language in Matthew and the Gospels, I want to hear what how you would interpret this passage. What's going on here? What is Jesus communicating through his engagement with this young man? Yeah, so great question. Um, so the, the young man wants to have eternal life. What must he do to, to have eternal life? Christian readers would expect Jesus to say, well, you can't do anything to acquire eternal life. But instead, Jesus says, well, you know, keep the commandments. Um, <laughs> focusing on the second table of the Decalogue, um, the interpersonal part, and then uh, capping it off with love your neighbor as, as yourself from, from Leviticus. Then, you know, it goes on even to say, if you desire to be perfect or complete, sell all that you have, give to the poor, have treasure in heaven, and then, and then come follow me. So Jesus here, you know, is, is Jesus going beyond what, what, the, what the Torah says or what the Old Testament says um, from a kind of a liter, literal angle? Obviously, yes. But in Matthew's world, it's important to remember that um, the only way to understand the scriptures is alongside of Jesus or through Jesus. So for Matthew, this is bringing out what it means to, to love your neighbor as yourself and to, to be complete. So what it requires, essentially, so starting with the Ten Commandments, but then when you really get into their inner essence, according to Matthew, it's total abandonment, total, complete abandonment to the gospel, to Jesus. That's, that's what attains uh, eternal life. Um, I mean, there's a question, like, so does that, does that mean... <laughs> the, one of the, the age-old questions. Does that mean that every single follower of Jesus, according to Matthew, needs to give up everything that they have? Well, unless Matthew was really clumsy and just kind of dumb, which he wasn't. No, because we have, say, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who's explicitly described as a disciple and as rich mm -hmm. um, in, in Matthew. So it can't mean that. But I don't, it also can't mean that this is the path to salvation just for this one guy, that this was a one-off, because everything in this passage echoes teaching of Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels. Um, the language of, of completion, of, tre of treasure in heaven, of giving up all that you have, of renouncing everything, radical renunciation as, as the path to life. This is, and Matthew never stops talking about this. So, um, so I think the, the, the point here is probably that while maybe not every disciple literally liquidates all their assets, uh, total renunciation in the sense of true willingness and then sort of the practice of giving up everything for gospel just is the way of life. Yeah. Interesting. The, um, I, I mean, it's interesting also that Peter will then later reply, right? Look, we have left everything and followed you. So like, unlike this, <laughs> unlike this rich, this rich young man, you know, we've done it. Right. Um, so it's almost like he, the, the Peter takes it as a command, not only to him, but that's incumbent on all disciples, though. I think you're, you're suggesting there's more nuance to be had, to be had there. Um, 
I, I really like your suggestion that um, th that what Jesus is basically telling him is that you are not actually loving your neighbor as yourself in his refusal, it seems like, to not sell his possessions and then to, um, and to give to the poor, that that's a violation of, you know, of the, of the law, which I think is, uh, is fascinating. But also the refusal to follow Jesus is also there too as well. Um, it's, it's almost like he's refusing, he's refusing to become a disciple. Is, is, that, is that a good way to put it, you think? Or? Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly it. I mean, to, to receive the summons. So Matthew, Jesus, according to Matthew, is very generous to people who err, as we discussed earlier. But to receive the call to take up one's cross and to just say no, that's that's not a good place to be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think he's, he is refusing to become a disciple. So we need to get to chapter 20, but before we do, we just have to address this one issue, which is, it, there's this famous saying here, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, right? Yeah. Now, does that refer to a particular gate called the Camel Gate, which camels had to kind of crawl through to get into Jerusalem? Uh, well, you guys, you probably know what I'm going to say because I, <laughs> I suspect everybody who, who teaches the, the Bible has to go through this with students over and over. No, it, it, it doesn't refer to a gate. Um, that's a kind of happy legend, a, a way of avoiding the plain sense of the passage. Um, if it's any consolation, the the manuscript tradition of this passage and its parallels shows attempts by copyists, you know, who cop copied the manuscripts to soften the blow in some way. But but no, um, sadly, it's just another fantastic synoptic image, over the top image, camel through the eye of a needle. The point is, it's impossible. You can't do it. Um, money, money is a killer. Uh, according to Matthew, this is something that, that this isn't a one-off, you know, you can't serve both God and, and money. Um, those who are stingy, their whole existence is, is thrust into darkness. Um, all of that is in, in, in chapter six. Um, clearly Matthew thinks you can do good things with money. And, and you find that elsewhere in the new Testament too. Um, the analogy I like is that, that money in the Jesus tradition is like radioactive material. Um, you could do really good stuff with radioactive material. You might really help people with it, but if you sleep with it by your bed, you know, <laughs> your, your, your toast. Um, so it, it cannot boil down as it does in so much preaching to a matter of pure interiority either. Like just don't be attached. Mm -hmm. You know, in the world of the gospels, if you just hang on to your money you are attached and, and then you yeah. can't serve God. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the economic language then, right, that we see here is uh, um, if you wish to be complete or whole, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. So by giving to the poor, he has treasure in heaven. So does the economic language suggest that you that uh, that he can purchase his way into heaven, would you say? Is that kind of the thrust of the language? Well, so the Gospels are happy to talk about things like um, repayment from God that is apparently synonymous with re receiving eternal life, um, with wages with God, treasure in heaven, you know, settling of accounts. Uh, Matthew in the early church generally was not nervous about 
this stuff in the way that we are. Moreover, um, to continue maybe with the bitter pill, uh, this the economic language in Matthew is not merely ornamental. It's not just something that is there because it's traditional or something that you could set aside. It, it really structures a lot of the things that Matthew says at a, at a fundamental level. I mean, even say in the, in the very Lord's Prayer um, and, and how disciples pray, pray for forgiveness. Um, have, having said that, though, Matthew, like other um, early Christian and Jewish texts that use this kind of economic language, you, they, this is the conceptual register that Matthew uses to describe divine generosity and mercy. So I think it's important not to just see the economic stuff and panic, as, as in my opinion, many interpreters have done in the last <laughs> few hundred years, um, but to, but to you know, slow down and try to understand what Matthew is actually doing with it. And so in this passage, um, yes, Jesus says to Peter, yeah, you, you know, you're going to receive this fantastic repayment. So will anybody else, even unto eternal life. And then goes on to tell the work, parable of the workers of the vineyard, which adds something to this, which is very, very much in right in the mainstream of, of early Jewish and Christian discussions of how God treats people. And goes on to, to describe God as an employer who pays people. There's a settling of accounts again, but God who is irritatingly generous to people who have done less. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yes, repayment, but... But, you know, it's also it's fantastically generous repayment. Yeah. And that parable is told to reinforce this phrase that Jesus gives both at the end of chapter 19 and then again at the end of the parable. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So what's so important about that phrase? It gets repeated. We get the parable to explain it to us. Yeah. So that's Matthew's way of, of making sure that we understand that the parable belongs. So this is a place where the, the medieval chapter divisions aren't very helpful for us. This is Matthew's way of trying to tell us that 19 and 20 belong together here and that you, you can't understand the interaction with the rich young man and the disciples, unless you also read the parable. Um, last first, first last shouldn't be taken as a literal, like the best disciples will actually be the worst or even like cast into the outer darkness, but as more of a kind of a, a slogan, meaning you don't be careful. You're dealing with God. You don't know which way is up. Um, God is, God is going to be so, so generous that might, and when you're reading the parable and there are people who worked all day and they're mad about people who didn't work as much, you might think of someone like Peter who said, well, look, we did all this stuff. Um, I, I mean, my, my own opinion is that this functions as a kind of a gentle warning to someone like Peter not to begrudge God's generosity to those who have done less. It's kind of, it's like Matthew's version of the parable of the prodigal son. When you have the, 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 and Luke, yeah. um, the older brother who gets grumpy about the forgiveness shown to the younger brother. Yeah. Great. Now, um, while they are on their way to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus tells the disciples that the son of man will be crucified and then raised on the third day. Uh, and here we have actually repeated son of man language. Uh, and then we read of this exchange with, between the mother of the sons of Zebedee and Jesus. And she asks Jesus to set one of her sons on Jesus's right hand and one on his left hand in his kingdom. Now, the other disciples get upset. They get angry uh, with the brothers about this. 
uh, I mean, isn't it the mom's fault? I don't know. But they're upset with the brothers, and then Jesus intervenes by saying uh, a few things, including uh, this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I think you point out in your book that this is actually economic language as well, uh, that I had you know, never thought of as economic language. So could you unpack that saying that many of us are uh, familiar with, but what is Jesus doing with it? How is uh, you know, him being Son of Man and the ransom language functioning as he responds? So this passage is the last time before Jesus enters Jerusalem, where, again, we have a dispute about greatness. Um, James and John have grasped the part about thrones, which came up in chapter 19. They want to rule with the Son of Man. This is image uh, imagery taken by Matthew from Daniel 7. We have the Son of Man ruling and all the nations serving him. James and John say, yes, excellent. We like that part. Um, we, we want to do that. And then again, we come back to uh, this question of status. So Jesus is trying to explain what this means for them and for himself over and over and over and over. This is his last attempt. And he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, um, which is kind of a reversal of the imagery in Daniel 7, where all the nations are serving the, the son of man. So he, he can reverses it a bit and says, actually, it's his vocation not to be like the Gentiles um, who lorded over others but to be a servant. And the way that he's a servant is where we get the ransom saying, specifically, he gives his life on the cross as uh, a ransom or to pay the, pay the ransom for many. Um, a lot of Matthean scholarship or commentary has tried to dismiss the theological significance of this saying on the grounds that ransom just means a, kind of a general release or redemption of some kind without specifying anything. Um, and the, the point that I try to make in the book is that the noun that's used here refers to some kind of price of release. It doesn't, it doesn't refer to just a redemption. But this is a traditional saying. Matthew takes it over from Mark. There are other similar sayings across the New Testament. The idea that Jesus in some way um, earns or pays a ransom um, as part of the salvific work he does for people. In the context of Matthew, I think probably what that would, the most plausible thing for that to mean in Matthew is what Matthew said over and over and over, that the people are in debt because of their sin. They're in bondage, they're in a kind of exile, and they need redemption. And the way that, that uh, Jesus redeems them is by, by giving his life, by doing the, the behavior that he teaches the disciples over and over, earns treasure in heaven. Earns the, the ransom price for their debt. This isn't worked out into any kind of, you know, elaborate, systematic, soteriological theory. Like, you know, probably people's brains jump to that. But in right. the context of, of Matthew, it's, you know, people are crushed by the debt of their sin. And Jesus has come to, to save them from that by, by this um, act of, of city. Interestingly, it's also, you know, something that occurs in the context of exhortation. So he's telling the disciples also, and this is the way of life that's set out for you as well. So it's not what a Christians tend to think of as just um, this is what Jesus does in it. You just receive it and nothing else happens. It's also set out for them as as what it means for disciples is to go and do something, you know, likewise, even if it's not identical. So back just 
connecting this back to the parable of the unforgiving servant in verse 27, when that servant asks for pity, it says, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. Is there any connection between that language used there and this ransom language here? Well, I, th- I think... So, you know, a, ran- a ransom could be used to describe, you know, something that you pay to somebody who, for example, somebody who's been th- thrown into prison or has been um, taken prisoner or enslaved, you know, you could pay them, enslave them. So it comes from a, a similar thought world. Um, I think, I don't know if th- this is quite what you're, what you're getting at, but in Matthew, we have a, what is for... For a lot of modern people, a confusing combination of sayings about Jesus's kind of vicarious action saving others here, and um, in chapter one, he will save his people from their sins, along with things like the parable of the unforgiving servant, where forgiveness seems to be contingent on certain actions on the part of followers. And the, and the way that I would read those together is is just that. Um, Chapter 18, refusal to forgive someone else is for Matthew basically synonymous with just rejecting that, that ransom, that, that re- freedom from yeah. bondage. Great. Great. Now, um, the one, one, maybe one, one quick last thing, comment, maybe to hear what you think about this, is that like we saw at the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus brings, there's a child that comes up that Jesus kind of offers as this object lesson, right, of what it means to be great in the kingdom. And then in chapter 19, in the middle of that, again, we get, again, children again, right, You that you have to be like children. Um, and then, so is a lot of the stuff intervening in here then, including the, you know, the sons of Zebedee, uh, who are uh, trying to be greatest in the kingdom. It, it, one is Matthew kind of showing, okay, this is not, they're, they're, they're failing in their kind of call to discipleship to be like children. They're trying to achieve a high status, which, as you said, children kind of embody this low status. And then on top of that, I wonder also if the, um, the rich young man, if he's kind of also clinging to his high status, right? So he's, he's not... Uh, he's not attaining the lowly status of a child in the kind of the divestment of his possessions. Uh, what do you think of that? Is that a good way to tie those things in, or would you want to put it similarly or differently? Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. So what, really across the Synoptic Gospels, from when Jesus begins teaching across, about the cross through to the end, uh, Jesus returns to this sort of question of like, what does the cross mean? And for disciples, what does this mean for how you live your life? What does this mean for for status? And no one ever really gets it. Um. So yeah. So the you know, the rich man. I mean, that's is why money is dangerous. It's status. It's power. It's hard to let go of. Um. James and John, they're the, the, the sons of Zebedee. Under they got the part about the thrones, but they don't understand that these are the thrones of of the crucified one. Even that language of sitting at Jesus's right and left foreshadows the language of the two people crucified on Jesus's right and left. It's not quite the same in Mark, and Matthew fixes that and makes it exactly mm-hmm. the same. Interesting. Um, so what to to ask what so what Jesus is sort of saying here is to ask to 
reign with the Son of Man on one of his thrones is to ask to be crucified with him. And yeah, but nobody, no, none of the characters ever get it. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I feel like I've got so much more yeah. out of the text, thanks to this discussion with Nathan. Last question we have for you is... Do you have a blurb for us? So something that you might recommend, and it could be a book like those blurbs we're so familiar with, but it could be anything else, TV show, movie, life hack, or whatever. Well, we're recording this on January 6th. And Mm -hmm. um, so my blurb is a New Year's tradition that I uh, got from a friend in high school. If you hear this, give me a call. Um, And that's to, on New Year's Day, get up. So it's called the the New Year's Day uh, 10-mile hangover run. You don't have to go 10 miles. You, you don't have to run. You don't have to have a hangover. Uh, it's better if you don't, actually. Uh, but, but the tradition is to get up really early. Everything's really quiet on, on New Year's morning and run or walk about as far as you can. It's uh, a fantastic way to, to start the calendar year. And I've, I've been doing it since I was a kid. So that's, that's my recommendation. Did you run or walk? I ran, but... I, I confess that this year, for the first time in a while, I did not make it 10 miles. Oh, okay. All right. Age catching up with you, baby. Uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> all right. Well, the New Year's Hangover Run is our blurb for this week. This week, And um, you can apply that. You know, you don't have to do it on New Year's. You can pick another day. Uh, great. Uh, well, thank you again, Nathan. Thanks for walking us through this text and all of the difficult and fascinating issues that it, that were, arose there. Uh, you know, we saw over and over again this idea of the final accounting in economic language. You know, Matthew is traditionally considered mm-hmm. to be uh, a tax collector himself, so he's probably familiar with this kind of economic <laughs> features. Um, you know how you do an accounting for a podcast? You look at the reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's, true. that's you know that's that a way that people idea. do this accounting. So we would appreciate if you contributed uh, to the accounting for this podcast by taking a moment to go to Apple Podcasts, put a review in there, or just share this with someone else. And you know who would be a great person to share it with? Well, maybe not. But children, right? Children, children probably love. Probably not. My children give me a hard time. They're like, uh, let's listen to the two testaments because we need to get to sleep. That, that, that's the reason you turn that on when we're on car trips to get us to go to bed. So anyway, well, thanks again, Nathan. We appreciated it, and thanks for listening. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zeldner, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion. Yeah.